Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a dear, dear friend and uh, one of the great upsides of the last 18 months or so has been uh, our growing friendship, Raja. And I am so pleased to have you here. Our guest today, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer and President of the Healthcare Business for MasterCard, the great Raja Raja Minar. Matt, thank you very much. Always an absolute pleasure and delight to be chatting with you. And looking forward to our conversation now. Thank you very much for having me here. That was a brilliant interlude. And the next and is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Quantum Marketing, which we're going to talk about. So thanks, Raja. This is just great. Thank you again, Matt. Okay. Much appreciate all right, it. All right. We have to get past just thanking each other and saying nice things about each other. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'd like to start, Raja, going back on that inspiration of wonderful women in the 18th and 19th century is your role as a board member of Bon Secours Mercy Hospital. And they are in doing an incredible job. I think I read somewhere, Raja, that they're producing more than $2 million a day to take care of people who have no other means. And this has been a time the last 18 months during this pandemic when there are a lot of people who have a lot of need. Um, so I'd love to talk about your work as a board member on the front lines of helping those who really need it the most and often have no other place to go. Yeah, I think, uh, Matt, uh, I feel so privileged and honored uh, to be associated with this great hospital system, uh, which is one of the largest hospital systems in the United States, as well as in Ireland. So Bon Secours Mercy Health is present both here in the US as well as in Ireland. Uh, one of the most extraordinary uh, healthcare institutions that's run not for profit. So they have got the mission and the mission is to take care of people, take care of people, particularly those who are dying, who are poor and who are extremely unable to afford uh, the kind of healthcare that you can go to in a uh, very good private system. And they run it for the mission, but in order to be able to serve their audiences, their uh, patients, uh, they also have to generate revenues. So it's not a hospital which is free for all, so to speak. They do charge uh, for all the procedures and visits, et cetera, but at the same time, they take care of people who are unable to afford uh, themselves. It, it's a great institution and it has been around for a bit. Uh, and uh, the board itself, I feel so fortunate to be in, uh, has got a lot of uh, number of Catholic missionaries, uh, but they're very secular. I'm not, for example, a Catholic myself, but it's very secular. It's more about humanity than about a specific religion or anything of that sort. But what they're doing is human's job uh, and I can clearly say that this organization uh, is probably as best as they could get uh, in terms of healthcare and how healthcare is provided to the people who are in need of it. And talk about the increased burden of COVID. So COVID, actually, there are certain things which increase because of COVID, and there are certain things which decrease because of COVID. And what I mean by decrease is during the lockdown, hospitals have uh, seen that the voluntary procedures uh, that patients would go through during normal times are all gone. 
Now, every procedure for any hospital or healthcare system actually is revenue generating because they have got a huge infrastructure. They have got buildings, they have got equipment, they have to take care of their staff, the doctors, the nurses, the caregivers. It's a huge infrastructure which requires maintenance. And they maintain it through the revenues that they earn, but a lot of procedures which were not life-threatening got put on hold during COVID. So those are the ones which actually declined. And on the other hand, COVID-related hospital admissions, treatments went through the roof. Uh, and there have been some peak uh, times when literally uh, no hospital in the United States or in, even in many other parts of the world, they just did not have the capacity to take care of all the people who are coming down. But I would say again, in the United States, uh, we are more fortunate and blessed than many other countries, uh, whether it is Brazil or whether it is India, where the, their health systems were stressed to an extraordinary extent. And uh, so that's, that's the kind of, you know, the uh, ups and downs of different forms of healthcare. But overall, the system itself was in a tremendous pressure. The other interesting thing, uh, even if it is a sad thing, is that many people who are actually treating other people, they themselves were getting infected. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the hospitals uh, for the healthcare workers uh, because many of them are either not available, they're not able to come, and, and the ones who are not infected and are able to work, they were working for extraordinary periods of time at a stretch. And uh, the kind of service that they have done hats off to them. There were nothing like, uh, you know, uh, what you would think uh, the healthcare staff would during normal time. They were literally angels uh, taking care of people who are really suffering. And they did their best. They were putting their own lives at risk. They were exposing themselves to people who are COVID infected, you know, which takes courage. And uh, but I think, uh, you know, I, I always salute these people. Uh, they are nothing short of warriors who are saving people's lives. Well, to be in a position to help support and lead an organization like that, that's got to give you a lot of satisfaction. It's also sometimes, I think, tough to watch. We're seeing doctors and nurses now almost rebel against the rise. And I read today about a protest in Florida where a number of doctors were very upset because some of our problems now seem to be at least partially self-inflicted. Yeah, you see, th there are multiple problems here. So one is our understanding of COVID itself was evolving with time. We never have witnessed anything of this scale, uh, of this uh, rapidly spreading nature. Uh, and we had to literally uh, find solutions on the fly. So even the vaccines, for example, that we have got, they have been brought to the market in a record time. And normal vaccines would take years and years of clinical testing and you know, uh, all kinds of testings. But now you have to accelerate everything and be in the market soonest. And we don't know how long the effect of these vaccines will be and hope and pray that they will last longer. But evidence seems to be that in about eight months time, you might want to re-vaccinate yourself and get a booster dose and things like that. That's one part of it. So I think uh, the scientists have really been uh, pushing this uh, entire thing forward as rapidly as you could imagine. Now, on the other hand, from a policy point of view, because the condition itself was less well understood, and because there was so much amount of disinformation and misinformation, uh, particularly on the likes of the WhatsApp University, 
you know, where everyone and anyone keeps forwarding all kinds of material. Uh, it was very difficult to distinguish the scientific facts versus made up uh, fiction. And, uh, you know, and, and therefore people to educate them, to ground them, to let them know what the truth is, it is in itself a huge challenge. And the policy, if you look at it again, there were sometimes the governments in different states were saying, yeah, we'll have masks, we'll have lockdown. Oh, no, we will not have masks because it doesn't make any difference. There were all kinds of entire full spectrum of reactions and responses. And uh, probably if we had followed uh, some of those uh, early mandates through for an extended length of time, whether it is the lockdowns in spite of its debilitating effects on the economy and on people's lives and on businesses, et cetera, which is a fact. Uh, but if you had done that kind of a thing on the one hand, or on the other hand, if the social distancing and the masks, whether it's indoors or outdoors, were kept for a prolonged period of time, uh, and if the checking at the borders was being done more thoroughly, et cetera, all this is easier said than done, right? If it was so easier, things would be done. But there are lots of pulls and pushes on every single decision that you have to take. And I think some decisions were taken for economic reasons, but we compromised on the health space. And some were taken on the healthcare side, but economy was tanking. So it's like uh, the pull and the push. Uh, but in hindsight, if we had been more disciplined in our lockdown, more uniform on lockdowns, and following the protocols of social distancing and masks, and really cracked down hard on uh, this disinformation and misinformation that was prevailing so much in the uh, both the mainstream media and even more so in the social media, uh, probably would have been in a better place today. But again, hindsight is twenty twenty. It sure is. Uh, you have the benefit of genuine global perspective, and you work not only with businesses all around, but with NGOs and governments around the world. Are you surprised, Raja, that? our global institutions like the WHO have largely receded from public view, at least in this country, and that their influence seems to be far less uh, than it might be in our interests for it to be. It does appear at one level that these kind of global health institutions have probably not been as visible and as assertive uh, and as directive uh, uh, to the countries. But on the other hand, various countries have also been fiercely nationalistic. They would want to do what they exactly want to do. And with so many conspiracy theories floating around, and there is a politicization of the entire issue in every, in so many countries, I would not just say it here in the United States, in every single country, in the developed world, uh, developing world, and, uh, you know, uh, the poor nations, the rich nations, politics was the common factor. And whichever politics suited in those different countries, they were the ones which were actually playing up. And at the end of the day, if you look at somebody like a World Health Organization, they are, uh, you know, actually not in a position to literally dictate terms and enforce uh, uh, what you call uh, implementation of the policies. They can advise, they can guide, they can suggest, they can encourage, they can urge, but they cannot say you shall do it and otherwise you'll get this penalty. That's not the kind of thing that they do. So that's one part of it. And I think also because the flow of information, particularly at the beginning of COVID, was not free and accurate from around the world, I think that also has not done, uh, any, not done as any good 
uh, and I think even uh, the World Health Organization was on the receiving side of that kind of information or lack thereof. So I think that that has sort of a little bit marginalized uh, their role compared to what they could actually play in normal times. But these are not normal times. These are extraordinary times with so much of uh, things happening with economic turmoil, the pandemic by itself, political turmoil, cultural turmoil. There were so many crises all happening at one time. This was absolutely unprecedented of historic proportions. Very well said. And uh, certainly the spirit of nationalism, not unique to America. And I'm not so sure we're always the better for it. So uh, let's dial it back a little bit and uh, shift gears. Uh, Your foundation academically is so fascinating to me in that it blends engineering and business. Mm -hmm. And I always think of you as someone who has created the ability to look into the crystal ball and actually see what's coming. And I am wondering now, as we try to start to build a little bit of a of a Raja Rajamanar narrative here, if you will, how much of that goes back to that duality of thinking in a mind that is both an engineering head and also at the highest level of academia, a business head? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting when I look back uh, at my own career, uh, one of the most significant influences that that, were, that was on me was from my mom, right? Right from childhood, because I come from a middle-class background uh, and uh, it was relatively modest and we never had any car or a refrigerator or an air conditioner at home. And always my mom used to say that, uh, you know, you have to uh, make something out of yourself and the best way to do it is through education. And she would also say, don't be a one-trick pony Education is good, but you have to be a lot more than that. So she pushed me into various extracurricular activities, so to speak. So I used to play tennis. I was in theater. Uh, I was actually uh, also on the radio as a radio jockey. We never called it radio jockey in those days. We used to call uh, a compare for the youth channel. Uh, And I used to do that every week. Uh, And I used to play tennis and uh, shuttle badminton. Uh, chess. There were so many things. So the whole idea was discover the many facets and the gifts you may have uh, been bestowed upon. So that was one big thing, which really always uh, kept me in a perspective that it's not single track, but you have to be multifaceted, number one. And when I did my chemical engineering, uh, it was a very analytical kind of a space, very quantitative. Uh, and uh, that really gave me, it was more than the subject matter content it was the way of thinking that really helped you. You think analytically, logically, rationally, and uh, connect the dots and so on. Now, when I went to MBA uh, and uh, I wanted to study uh, in environmental management, which was all about pollution control, et cetera, because I saw a continuity from my chemical engineering in which I also took an elective uh, and specialized in environmental engineering. So when I went there, it was very uh, interesting that during my internship, which was a logistics project with one of the cosmetics companies in India called LACME, which is where I did my summer internship, uh, I overheard a conversation between my uh, supervisor and the agency, advertising agency. 
and they were debating about how they should create a new campaign of uh, making cosmetics, color cosmetics more acceptable to the relatively conservative South Indian families at that point in time. Now, since I come from such a family, I said, why are these guys struggling? I just sat down there in my cabin and I just quickly drew up a small ad and the headline was, is it bad to look good? And I said, and I just put some, you know, a little bit of a poetic, you know, three, four lines and put a visual. And I went and said, hey, how do you think uh, this one looks like? They were pretty stunned. They thought it exactly addressed the need that they have got that they were trying to actually take care of. And it went to the chairman of the company. And then she saw she happened to be in town in Bangalore at the time. And then she thought this is brilliant. And then they went on to release the campaign and it won some awards and all that. So when I had that kind of uh, uh, encouragement and success so early on, I said, maybe this is what I'm intuitively and naturally good at. So I moved into marketing. And once I started getting into marketing, I left my environmental management behind and jumped headlong into marketing. And even in marketing, because my first steps were uh, on the creative side, till date, for me, when I look at marketing, it's about the heart, it's about the creativity, it's about the intuition, it's about the judgment, design, uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology, and so on. But my engineering background and engineering way of thinking, which was very foundational to me, also gives me a lot of comfort with the data, with numbers, with finance, uh, with the technology, et cetera. So I'm able to straddle both sides pretty effectively, I would say, and bring the best of both the worlds. So I talk about the right brain and the left brain working together to make magic happen. And that's what I strive. Fantastic story. And we share uh, an affection and fond remembrances of the roles of our mothers in shaping us. My mother also mm -hmm. was very encouraging to me, in particular about getting jobs to earn a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. She would always cut out newspaper articles and leave them for me. And she also pushed me to do internships. And one of the things that I lament about young people today, especially in this virtual environment, is the importance of those experiences in shaping oh, us. Yeah. So those early jobs, those early experiences, whether it's playing sports or an intellectual pursuit, or in my case, jobs like I used to have my own Chipwich cart. In Manhattan, I sold ice cream on the street in New York City when, wow. I was when I was 15. And if you want to learn how to deal in business under tough circumstances, you know, battling it out with the, you know, souvlaki carts and the ice cream trucks and, you know, <laughs> the, the grownups who were doing that for a living. I was just some kid, you know, there for the summer. You know, that was the Aberdeen, uh, Aberdeen proving grounds, if you will. <laughs> no, but you're right. They are really, truly foundational and uh, literally seminal moments in our lives, right? In fact, you know, one of the things I also keep talking about the role of my mom in my own career uh, is, you know, from a very early age, she used to take me every day with me uh, on a walk to the marketplace. Uh, so we used to be in a residential area and we had to walk for about 20 minutes or 25 minutes to go to a place where we could buy things, our groceries, our produce, and all these various shops were there. And that was actually my first exposure to marketing from the eyes of a consumer, how she would bargain, how she would actually do the searching, and I would try to imitate her. And you get that informal apprenticeship, so to speak, you learn. And some of those you might think are trivial, but actually they are so foundational to understanding consumer behavior. It was 
even today, when I look back, sometimes when I launch a new concept, I would think, okay, how would my mom have felt or how does my wife react to this? Uh, how would my sister do something on, and on this? And that's really, it gives such a brilliant reality check without necessarily going to do market research and so on. So yeah, these are absolutely invaluable and they shape our future in many ways. We have so much ground to cover. I don't want to stay in the early stages uh, too long, but just for one more second, the power of those young experiences and what it does for us. But did you ever imagine then, Raja, you said no refrigerator, no air conditioning. You have one of the great global jobs in global commerce for one of the marquee companies. And you also lead within your own industry, lead your peers as the president of the World Federation of Advertisers. When you were taking those walks with your mom to the market, did you ever imagine leaving home and not only ultimately leaving your country and becoming a true citizen, not just of India, but a true global citizen? See, I have not really planned it that way, nor I dream it in that particular fashion. All I wanted to do was study very well, get a great job and do well in life. And I had a role model ahead of me, which was my brother. And he is 18 years older than me. So there was a huge age gap between him and myself. And he was a brilliant student. So therefore, I was always compared. Say, hey, your brother has done well. You should do like him. You should be like him. So studies were very important. Then he became, and the reason why I took chemical engineering was because he was a chemical engineer himself. And he used to lead, at least by our standards in those days, an excellent life. He had a great uh, apartment uh, provided by the company that he was working for. He had a car, he had a driver, all provided by the company. And these were seen as symbols of success, having arrived in life in some sense in, in that particular society in those days. So I said, yeah, I should also one day, like my brother, have all these good things. Uh, but it was not like I was going to do a particular thing uh, or leave the country and go to the US in, the, in those days. But when I was doing my uh, engineering. At that time, all the students uh, from engineering, their biggest aspiration was go to the United States for higher education and settle down in the United States because it was considered, it's always looked up upon as the destination that one would love to be accepted in. And so I too actually got accepted in multiple colleges with full scholarships in the US, but I did not go for some, you know, at the time my mom's health was not great, so I stayed back. So I continued my career in India uh, till 1993. Uh, I was with Unilever and I was doing pretty well there and I had all the stuff my brother had. I, I have achieved all those things. But when Citibank came along and then said they would want me to start their credit cards business in the Middle East, uh, it was a new business, new country, new opportunity, tax-free income, international exposure. I said, this is going to be fun. So I just went because that opportunity came along. I was not looking for making an international career. My whole idea was I'll retire in Unilever one day and wherever they send me a mobile and I would love to discover the world, I'll go with them. But Citibank actually short-circuited the process. They gave me the international opportunities much, much sooner than I would have got in Unilever. And from then on, once I was on the international circuit, my destination that I was aspiring to get into was still the United States. That had not changed. And I felt very grateful that in 2001, Citibank eventually brought me to the United States 
you know, in business development first and subsequently as the chairman and CEO of Tyner's Club North America, which was a subsidiary of Citibank. So it's now 20 years, 21 years that I'm here in this country. And this is like, it's living the dream, so to speak, that I had uh, at one point in time to go, you know, settle down. And, you know, so this is the place now I call home. And uh, I've been a United States citizen for the last uh, 12 plus years. And uh, so here I am. Here you are indeed. So let's not gloss over Unilever, which was one of the early companies that you worked for and with. Unilever has a great reputation in developing talent. You were there, give or take, uh, six years. Mm -hmm. And I imagine had some great mentors. Talk about that culture and what that contributed to your foundation that you would later draw upon at City at MasterCard and throughout your career? So Unilever in India was considered to be uh, the best training ground for any person who aspired to make a career in marketing particularly. And so when I went and joined Unilever, uh, it, it was really interesting that they did not get me into marketing first. They asked me to join sales. And I used to have in those days some weird misconceptions that sales was for the less intelligent people and the intellectuals only join marketing or finance or something of that sort. If you don't have any other qualification, then you go to sales. And if you have the gift of the gap, you should be okay to go into sales. So I always had a relatively low opinion of sales in those days. So they said, no, you're going to start in sales because unless you know what it means to pound the pavements and to actually sell, you will be a theoretical and a fluffy marketer. I went into sales kicking and screaming. But when I went there, uh, I, I actually for the first couple of months, I was almost to the verge of quitting and going back to my previous company where I was doing very well in the field of marketing, which was Asian Paints was the name of the company there. And I was a founder flunky of the marketing department at Asian Paints, which was the country's at that time, India's largest paint company. And, uh, but after two months or so in Unilever, I started seeing, hmm, actually, there is a lot I need to learn. It's not just the gift of the gap. There is so much of stuff that happens behind. And that's where the marketing warfare happens. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the reality happens. That's where the true moments of truth happen. And uh, I started getting headlong into it. it requires enormous uh, interpersonal relationships because I had to manage salespeople. And in those days, we didn't have telephones. You didn't know whether a salesperson had woken up and gone to the market that day or was simply sleeping at home and just filling a form in the evening. You had to earn their trust. You could not monitor, monitor them. You had to motivate, you had to inspire. It was so, such an amazing experience for me uh, where I thought I'll stay for one year. I ended up staying three years and I was managing North India based out of Delhi. And extraordinary experience that I built so many relationships. I, even today, I feel very proud that my team uh, in Unilever India in sales they're in touch with me. And just this last Sunday, I was actually having a conference call with them, reminiscing the good old days. But what it did, Matt, is, so I started in marketing in paints, moved into sales in Unilever, and then moved into marketing in Unilever. I was a much better and a well-rounded marketer after my sales stint at Unilever 
than I was before the sales stint. What it does is it starts making those connections in your mind as to what kind of marketing campaigns or market out of products, product features would really resonate in the marketplace. It's not just based on some theoretical market research, but it is a different learning and you understand the nuances of the distribution. So as a result of which, the kind of products that I used to actually manage at Unilever, every one of them became big hits because I understood the sales system and I knew exactly how to leverage that sales system to the maximum benefit of that particular brand or that particular product. It was an extraordinary learning experience. And marketing itself, in my first job at Asian Paints, because I went straight from the university uh, uh, or straight to the college, and uh, a lot of it was self-taught marketing. But when I came to Unilever, I had to unlearn some of the things and I had to relearn in a very formal, structured, methodical fashion, which stands me in a good state till now. So my first stint taught me about entrepreneurial approach to marketing, whereas my second stint of marketing at Unilever was more the classical marketing, both of which I think have got a tremendous uh, role in today's world. And uh, it has been from then on uh, you know, that I started leveraging those concepts and looking to learn, even as I moved through Citibank and subsequently in healthcare and now here in MasterCard for the last eight plus years. Even before that, those walks to the market with your mother, that's also mm. part of this foundation. Oh, absolutely. It's a great, great story. So let's talk about Dubai. Mm-hmm. That was your first big international assignment. You were there in the mid-90s, relatively early in the rise of Dubai as a global economic powerhouse. Just Mm -hmm. as London is the capital of EMEA, Dubai has become the capital of MENA. So you're nine years out of college. You get off the plane in Dubai. What do you remember from that very first day? So by the time I went to Dubai, I was already married and I had my first son who was two years old. So we landed together in uh, uh, Dubai. Uh, What was fascinating to me was culturally how different that place was from India. Totally different. Uh, It was uh, was a religious country. Uh, India used to be more secular. uh, And uh, it was a very disciplined society. India was not. India is very, you know, uh, even if I were to say chaotic, it was. Uh, but there was a you know, method in that madness as well. Uh, and it was a place which was not really well known uh, for white collar employees. It typically, the blue collar employees, so to speak, would go to Dubai, like the cooks and the drivers and the fitters and the welders. It used to be those you know, working class of that type that would go. So people were surprised as to why I was going there. Plus, it was a new category for me altogether, you know, credit cards. I had, I never had a credit card till then. I didn't know how a credit card worked. And Dubai was a society uh, which was cash rich and tax free. So nobody had any need to use a credit card to begin with. So how do you create the need for a product and then get market share? That was a you know interesting challenge, and uh, the quality of life was extraordinary because uh, you know in those days the infrastructure for Dubai was uh, fantastic even in, as early as in 1994. Uh, so when we went there, for me it was a quick learning experience in terms of understanding the differences, the legal system, the cultural aspects, and you had to be 
uh, you know, uh, appropriate to that marketplace, be respectful of the culture, but be effective as a marketer uh, in a new category that I knew nothing about. But what really gave me the confidence as well as the following success thereafter was that the principles of marketing are universal. The foundational aspects of people are universal. There might be manifestations which are nuanced by culture and the, uh, the context, but they're all exactly people have the same aspirations. They have the same fears. They have the same insecurities. They have the same ambitions, the dreams. Everyone wants to have a good family, have their children well-educated. These are all so common. And it's uh, those basic human emotions uh, if you understand them well and the interrelationships between those and how they make their commerce decisions or purchase decisions, you could be golden. And that's what, so I followed the book, adapted it clearly for that local situation. And within nine months of launching the credit card, we became market leaders. And in 14th month, the business broke even. And that was a record for Citibank in those days that a new business will break even in as short a time as 14 months. There was no looking back. And then from then on, we were just growing from strength to strength to strength. And we came to a very significant dominant position in the marketplace in terms of a market share, the brand image and so on. But what City taught me, that, that stint in Dubai taught me, uh, were three things I would say. Number one is that my marketing skills are portable to a completely different kind of a setting, which had nothing, which was nothing like India, number one. Number two, uh, it was that irrespective of the category, I have already been that in two categories before I was in uh, packaged goods and before that in paints and hardware. And here I was now in financial services, the marketing principles hold. Number three, you don't do marketing for marketing's sake, but you do marketing to drive business results. Now, Citibank was extremely conscious of business results and anything I would do, the first question invariably was, okay, what is the ROI? And the answer that I don't know is not acceptable. So I had to, I really forced myself to think and say, how am I going to find an ROI for this particular campaign that I'm doing? And it, it, it really brought in a financial, a level of financial discipline uh, that really added uh, substantially to how I started doing marketing thereafter for the rest of my career till now. So it, it, it was an extraordinary experience for me and my family. And we were there uh, for more than six years in Middle East before Citibank transferred me to London to manage Europe, Middle East and Africa region for all the consumer assets. With Citi, you had such a great run. And, and just as you, Raja, have become one of the great minds of the global marketing community today, Back then at City, you had a chance to work for and with some great minds. Who were some of the people that you remember from that phase of your career? And it could be London, New York. I think you had a tenure in Chicago as well. Who were some of the great minds who really helped you along the way and influenced you back in that still sort of early-ish part of your career? Yeah. So in fact, you know, I fondly remember many folks uh, for example, uh, my colleague at, uh, in Dubai, who is now the global CEO of the retail bank and payments at Barclays uh, out of London, he was one of my earliest influences uh, in that stint uh, to talk about finances 
and uh, you know how business financials are so critical for the marketers to understand and bringing that financial discipline that was extraordinary and he was a great guy he is a great guy the second one i would say is uh, ajay banga ajay banga he is uh, uh, been my boss for a number of years in city bank and uh, then he became uh, the ceo of mastercard and uh, therefore i joined i followed him uh, into mastercard after he became the ceo uh, somebody who actually taught me many things number one is about uh, you know having a, a real conviction that you can run a business that is purpose driven that you can leverage the power of the network the power of the assets that you have got when you are in a large organization for societal good so his credo is always you can do very well by doing good things for the society so doing well by doing good was the credo that he used to always follow and that i completely imbibed uh, you know right from my city bank days so that's what i would say uh, has been uh, uh, you know a significant influence then i had somebody called steve freiberg who went on to become the ceo of uh, e trade uh, and uh, uh, you know then he went to bcg as a senior advisor and so on now steve freiberg i think was somebody who actually taught me the art of business management he is one of the smartest smartest business people and everything he is so on top of in terms of how to run the business and how to get the results and how to get the momentum he has been phenomenal and he did it with a great heart with a good heart and he literally used to uh, mentor me uh, then somebody like a sandy while no uh, i did not work for sandy while directly but i had the uh, you know blessing literally i would say of being mentored by him and even now i'm in touch with him and he was the uh, chairman and ceo of city group and built city group india you know the, the biggest uh, financial organization in the world at the time and uh, he actually was someone who taught me the uh, you know the aspect of entrepreneurism so how, you need to be an entrepreneur even if you are in a gigantic organization you don't get bureaucratic and he was fantastic at mergers and acquisitions making the deals and being on the move a phenomenal that that's one thing who has been a significant influence on me uh, i would say these are some of the people that that stand out uh, for me in terms of the kind of people that i have been blessed with to work uh, to work with and uh, who made a, who had a huge impact on how i uh, you know thought Uh, or how I think today, and how I act, how I behave, how I go about my business. Great, great icons of business, and Sandy Weil also a great philanthropist here in New oh, York. Oh yes, you know, oh yes. And I think that era. I was writing to someone today, Wesley Turhard. You know Wesley at Media Monks, mm-hmm. and uh, I was talking to him today about asking him to take on a pro bono project for a big arts institution. in New York and I think our industry on the whole is quite generous. I know you're very involved as a member of the board of the Ad Council. And and I think I worry about that era of those great icons of New York in a business who helped build great institutions like Carnegie Hall, like Lincoln Center, like Rockefeller Center. I hope, you know, supporting our great hospital system here in New York. I hope that tradition will find its way to the next generation of leaders. That that's just so important. Sandy Weil was, you know, the model. Absolutely. In fact, I know he has done so much 
for Cornell Medical School, for example, and hospitals. And then he has done for Saloma University in California. He has a long list of uh, you know philanthropic initiatives, uh, which is truly commendable. Yeah, you know, I think you raise such an important point, Matt, uh, that once this generation, the next generation comes in, would they have that same kind of a largeness of heart? Uh, and would they do the things that really matter to the society, et cetera? Uh, I, I feel pretty optimistic about it. And what will happen is instead of they, there being a few pillars who are standout examples of this, uh, of this previous generation, I think there'll be a lot, many more people. There might not be gigantic philanthropists like them, but I think a lot of people will be philanthropic in general for three reasons. Number one, I think there is increased consciousness amongst the business leaders. And I think for the first time, if I uh, get it right, about a year and a half or two years back, Business Roundtable had for the first time amended their uh, the statement to say that it's not just about the pursuing of profits that a company should go after. It's also about the society. That statement might seem to be self-evident or very obvious at this point in time, but to get it, put it in writing and then follow through that is not easy, number one. Number two, many of the billionaires, whether it is from the startup world uh, or even for the large corporations, they're, they're contributing huge amounts of money uh, and not necessarily, uh, you know, sort of putting their name behind everything. But there is a lot of philanthropy that is absolutely going on. The third aspect of the democratization of philanthropy, I would say, if I can use a word like that, or a phrase like that, is that consumers are pushing companies to be actually doing something which is good for the society. And when consumers start voting with their wallet, which they are today already, companies are held accountable, so they have to perforce do it. So I think this is something which is here to stand up, particularly feel grateful and very, very excited about the fact that the newer generation of uh, uh, people coming, like the Gen Zs and the, you know, the millennials and the Gen Zs and the centennials, these people are so conscious of societal good, a lot more than my generation, for example, that they say they're willing to work for companies for a lesser salary if the company is truly purpose-driven and is doing the right thing by the society, not for political correctness, but with its heart. That's a big thing. Consumers are saying they're willing to pay a premium or prefer constantly and consistently the same product or the brand that stands for a good societal purpose. Now, when you have got consumers demanding and when you have got large investment organizations, uh, like, for example, uh, you know, BlackRock, saying that you have to be environmentally responsible and so on. I think the accountability on organizations is increasing. So I think, therefore, the aspect of societal good, philanthropy, that print those principles, they will be much more democratized and more embedded, which itself will make uh, it more sustainable into the future. So I feel pretty optimistic about what is going to be ahead for us in terms of philanthropy and societal good as done by uh, corporations and businesses. Well, certainly if the foundation of the pyramid is thinking along those lines, that benefits all of us. So true. So true. So along the pathway forward, healthcare remains part of your portfolio, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you work for some great companies, Humana, and that stays, I think, well point as well for a bit. 
that mm-hmm. that is part of you also we all think of you today as really the world's foremost cmo and, and we're going to talk a lot about mastercard and of course about quantum marketing but you continue an interest in healthcare talk about that part of the journey and i know it's still very much a part of your remit at mastercard where you run their global healthcare business yeah so in fact when i came to the us for the first time i discovered some something called health insurance i was not familiar with the concept of health insurance till i came to the us in 2001 and when i went through the whole process i was absolutely horrified i said this is absolutely ridiculous because in my own situation uh i i saw how broken that healthcare system is pretty early on so in 2009 when i had the opportunity to join humana as its chief innovation and marketing officer and also as its chief executive for their international operations i jumped at it because i thought i could go in and do something for the system because i have experienced it as a patient and as a family member of patients obviously this is something which i could understand it's like you know being with my mom as an early young shopper in this country i have been there as a patient and i've always consumer centric so i said everything has to be patient centric but our system in the united states is anything but patient centric it's totally broken in every which way so when i went into humana uh, the idea was to bring innovation that consumer centricity or patient centricity uh, sort of bring about the latest and the greatest in terms of digital technologies the power of data and so on and so forth to improve the services and the care for the for the patients and that continued with anthem uh, where i used to manage their medicare advantage business and i was their chief transformation officer i managed their mergers and acquisitions and so on and so forth and between those two stints i really learned a lot about the insights of the insides of the healthcare system uh, and it it absolutely is terrible overall if you were to say uh and everyone feels they are a victim of the healthcare system the insurance companies think that the patients and the hospitals are out taking them for a ride the hospitals say that they're dealing all the time with uh, irresponsible patients who don't follow the protocols and bad insurance companies who are only about declining their claims and the patient feels that they're being jerked around between the insurance company and the healthcare the reality is united states healthcare the spending is the highest in the world more than double that of the next highest spender in the world but in terms of outcome we are about 20 or 21 so we are way down so we are spending huge money but our results are not anywhere great so we said what can we do about this whole thing so one of the fascinating things i discovered after i went into the healthcare space was there is a lot of similarity in the business in the nature of the business of healthcare companies and payments companies there could be a lot of cutover of expertise between these two industries so when i came to mastercard i said look healthcare is a great opportunity from a business point of view but more importantly when we talk of doing something good for the society we can do a ton of stuff to take care of some of the broken pieces in the healthcare system and uh, it took a little bit of convincing first my ceo and with my ceo had to convince the board to make sure that nobody perceives that we have lost our direction and we are doing crazy things but so it took time to get it started but having started now it's on a run it not, not run run is the bad word uh, it, it's actually on a tear it's doing extremely well 
I'm going to guess right around that point we're past Humana and Anthem. It sounds like Raja, an old friend, comes back into the picture. And you mm-hmm. get, I'm guessing you get a call or an email from RJ. Is that what right. happened? That's exactly what happened. So I worked for RJ before at Citibank for a number of years. So when he became the CEO of MasterCard, he wanted me to join him. Uh, and I have a great working relationship with him. And I also consider him as a friend, uh, a guide, mentor. And I said, it'd be a wonderful opportunity to team up again with him uh, and work. So I came to MasterCard. And that's where, uh, in addition to marketing and communications, which he wanted me to uh, manage, I also convinced him first and then the board later to start our healthcare business. And uh, so fast forward now, healthcare business is doing very well, thank God. Uh, and uh, we, are, we are making some very cool innovations in the healthcare space. And on marketing side, of course, the company uh, has been doing extraordinarily well on the brand side, on the business building side, and on building competitive advantage for uh, the company. Uh, and uh, so I feel very proud. We have built a very, very strong team, which is firing away on all, all cylinders. And the work that you have led for MasterCard is truly best in class. It wins every award there is to be won in the industry. But more important than trophies uh, on a mantle, it's powerful and it makes something you referred to earlier, that emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And, And I have to think an awful lot of that comes from you and your ability to inspire a global creative team, not only in-house, but McCann being one that I'm certainly very well attuned to, but a whole global network of incredibly creative agencies and other resources. Talk about that emotional injection, if you will, that is such a critical part of the DNA of MasterCard's incredible, incredible marketing. Yeah. So I think firstly, I'm blessed with some of the best talent in the world, right? I diligently, diligently put together a team uh, which is incredibly competent. Uh, They're a fantastic fit for the company. Uh, And uh, everyone is very deeply committed. Now, one of the key things that I had to do was on the one hand, make sure that marketing had its seat at the table. It's not just a creative function, which is sitting in its own corner and doing some pretty stuff, but it had to be something which was meaningful to the rest of the company. It had to drive the business. It has to build the business and it has to differentiate the company and make it stand out. So on the brand side, for example, we used to be ranked at number 87 on brand Z. So still I inherited a a, a top hundred brand. Today we are at number 10. And in the United States, we are at number eight. Uh, So which is a beautiful transition forward on the one hand. On the other hand, marketing needed that credibility in the organization as a business driver, Uh, not just producing pretty advertisements and uh, organizing events, but this is something which is meaningful to the business. So that's something which I had to change the culture, be an evangelist for marketing in the company, build bridges with the rest of the C-suite, make them see the promise uh, and the delivery of marketing, what it can do for the company in total. And I think we gained a healthy respect and the seat at the table. So that's, that in itself is very inspiring to the team. 
Now, the, the way to do it, I always say, is you have to both target the head and the heart. And when you talk of emotions, you know, at the end of the day, people don't need a rational explanation as to why they should take your brand or why should they should purchase your product. They are emotional beings and you need to connect with them at, at that emotional level. And again, even emotions, there are different types of emotions and different sequences of emotions that can lead you to the desired outcome or not. So we have to understand the consumer psychology and neurology very in depth. So I started actually having classes for my team members and I had been inviting professors from various colleges like Yale to come and teach us behavioral economics and neuromarketing, so on and so forth. And showcasing to people as to how, if you understand the consumer emotion appropriately and tap into it in the right kind of a fashion, you could get extraordinary results. And that sort of, when people started seeing it in action, it was like almost an apprenticeship for them. So I was leading from the front. I was there with the teams and I get heavily involved uh, in the creative development all the way to final execution uh, and, and so they get to see and understand and learn and then start sort of being independently very capable, very competent so that they don't need adult supervision all the time. Uh, this has been a brilliant journey. And I feel, as I said, I've got a world-class team, which makes my life easier. And it also makes results for the company fantastic. Uh, and that's the journey we have been on. And one of the big things for me was right in the early days at Unilever, in India, in those days, the agency was always seen, the ad agency was seen to be sort of subordinate to the client. The client is the master and would dictate, and the agencies will sort of are humble, and then they will, they're service-oriented, they will march to the orders of the client. One of my bosses there, uh, a, a brilliant guy, his name is Alec Lever, he said, at that time, it was very early on. He said, Raja, if you treat your agency as your equal partner, you get magic out of them. Don't treat them like menials. Don't be arrogant. Just because we happen to sit on the client side doesn't give that extra right or privilege. Yes, we pay the bills, but you know the agency can actually you know, produce so much better if you are. So from then on till date, I literally embrace the philosophy that the agency is an extended part of my team. Again, not for being cute and Pollyannish about it, but in a real sense to walk the talk. So my agency is present at all my offsite meetings, for example. They are there in every single strategic decision and they understand what is happening in the company, with the company, with the budgets. We operate with a tremendous level of transparency and we all obviously uh, ask them to keep all this discreet. So what happens is the relationship is at a different level. So McCann, for example, is our lead creative agency around the world. And uh, we have been with them since 1997. When it has become a little bit fashionable to keep switching your agencies or it becomes convenient for you to hold the sword on their head, that, the Damocles sword on their head to say, oh, you reduce it, otherwise I'm going to an RFP. So it's not managing them by threatening, but you should inspire them. You should be with them. And, and McCann has been producing such extraordinary work for us. Frankly, you know, uh, I feel very grateful to them. Uh, and they have made us look good. They got us fantastic results. And uh, that's exactly how it has to be between the agency and the client. And that, that uh, goes a long way uh, in, in terms of what inspires that creativity and what inspires that kind of uh, uh, emotional connection with the consumers eventually.
It's a great, great, great story. So, Raja, you defy the odds in a number of ways. The average tenure of the CMO has continued to decrease. Loyalty with agencies has continued to decrease. Mm-hmm. You defy both. You're in the midst of a, of a wonderful run at MasterCard. We'll be celebrating your 10-year anniversary in a year or two. That's a great mm-hmm. run as a CMO. And I know you have a bigger remit than just that, but let's just focus on the, that particular part of your world. And the loyalty with agencies is so fleeting these days. You make a very compelling case by making them a true transparent partner. You can start to see why MasterCard is so effective as a marketer. And I love the creative root story you told of that early campaign you did going back to Asian paints. You can see how you draw on that now where you're starting with a creative vantage point among the many leading a global organization like that, that's producing incredibly emotional, effective, creative. See, absolutely. You know, I firmly believe that the longer the agency is with the company, they understand the company better. They understand the soul of the brand. They're not simply responding to a creative brief. They understand the soul of the brand. They understand the consumers. They understand the segments because they're living that reality with us on a daily basis. So long as they're not getting complacent. Uh, and, And I strongly believe that you get from an agency what you ask for. And what you ask for reasonably, you push them very hard, but be reasonable uh, and be fair uh, and treat them like your partners. They give their, uh, you know, full uh, to, your, to your brand, to your company. And, and when everything is working, why do you want to change the agency for the sake of changing or cutting a few dollars, right? And I think agencies also should have an upside of the company's upside in many ways. So typically, uh, you know, uh, it should not become a, exercise where the sourcing or the procurement people are constantly comparing the costs and saying, oh, you're 3% more expensive than sorts of, now let's go to an RFP and get cheaper rates. Now, I don't uh, allow those kind of things to happen. But at the same time, I'm not going to pay them outlandish fees. It'll be fair fees. It'll be competitive because I do believe that if you throw peanuts, you only get monkeys. So you have to make sure that you're compensating your partners well, just like you want to compensate your team well as well, because they are a part of your team. And if they are working very well, why change? That's number one. Number two, that doesn't mean it's all utopian and all everything is hunky-dory. There are times when you know, there are some pockets where things are not working. That's when you have a conversation with them. Like for example, Bill Kolb, who is now the CEO at McCann. Now, he and I, we have regular calls. And I say, hey, Bill, these are working well here. These are the areas where I need your attention. And then they get taken care of. So it's basically letting them know where exactly they stand, what the expectations are, where the shortfalls are or shortcomings are, and together address those things in a nice way. Sometimes it's a question the issue is on my side, where maybe my team members are not giving them enough lead time or some of my team members may not be appreciating the quality of a given idea and prematurely rejecting it. So in those kind of cases, I say just escalate it in the chain and then have the supervisor, the person who is actually rejected his, his or her boss to take a look at it so that you should feel you're putting your heart and soul and coming up with a creative execution. And if the client throws it out, and if you think it is not fair, you should have a good hearing. 
So we keep this whole process going very well. And that sort of encourages them quite a lot uh, to follow through uh, on the one hand. Likewise, I also believe even with our brand ambassadors or the events that we sponsor, I maintain a very long, uh, you know, good partnerships uh, with these people. And rather than flitting from one to the next to the next one, uh, I do believe that a Rolling Stone doesn't gather any moss. And that's true. So that, that's my philosophy. And so far, it's been holding up very well. Like I said, McCann is now 24 years with us uh, and going strong. And, uh, uh, you know, and we have been winning, like, you know, this year, we have won our highest number of awards ever. Now that winning awards is just one metric, but you can see the quality of results that we are getting, you know, even in the pandemic situation, even when all of us are working remotely, the results we are getting are fantastic. And I'm the first one to acknowledge the role of the agency in this. It's not just all my team. It's my team and equally, it's the agency. It's an, it's an amazing, amazing story. Are there campaigns, Rash, uh, just to stay on with the creative there must be some campaigns that you look upon particularly fondly that you really, boy, that one really hit it for me. Anything come to mind there? Yeah. The most recent one is the campaign called True Name, uh, where it was a campaign. In our, no, in our quest for inclusion, uh, we started looking at opportunities where we could make a difference. And it was one of our agency uh, people who had come up with this idea saying that why don't you create a card for transgender people because they have a unique pain point where their name does not match their appearance and they're harassed endlessly by the merchants in those situations they said can you actually put the desired name of the individual on the card so that they are not harassed uh, or bullied or declined in terms of the service it looks like a trivial solution but it is not uh, and we had, we came up with a very simple solution, but it is not simplistic. And we launched it and uh, I feel so thrilled. It has won all kinds of awards for us. And this has happened just, uh, you know, between 2020 and 2021. So most recent, and, and I feel delighted about it. Uh, and we have launched again at MasterCard priceless surprises with Justin Timberlake, which I remember very fondly. That was our first uh, campaign that really hit the ball out of the park uh, just a few months after I joined the company. That was one of my very first campaigns at MasterCard, uh, where we created this concept of priceless surprises, where we had uh, Justin Timberlake visiting one of uh, his fans, who is a MasterCard customer, and she didn't expect that there was going to be Justin Timberlake outside her door. And she was totally flabbergasted in a good way. And then he spent some time with her to give her some tips on singing because she's a singer herself and so on. And we recorded all that conversation and then put it in the social media and it became a big, big hit such that we got better results for that campaign than what some of the biggest sponsors of Super Bowl had during that similar kind of a time frame. Uh, it was around the same time frame, And we spent a fraction of the money which any of the uh, other big spend, uh, marketers were spending on their campaigns during Super Bowl. So I feel very, uh, you know, uh, that, was, that was probably one of the biggest uh, one at the time. That's how I started my career here at uh, uh, MasterCard, but had a number of campaigns along the way. Uh, the campaign called Celebrate with Asian Paints, which was the first campaign that I created for, uh, from Asian Paints uh, and bringing the aspect of painting your house in the context of a festival and celebrating that festival. 
Uh, it, it, it actually long after I left the company also it ran for nearly 17, 18 years. It was running very successfully. Uh, so that's again, something which I'm very fond of. Of course, I'm biased because I created it. Right. And, right. <laughs> so over the years I had lots of uh, successful campaigns. Yeah. Fantastic. So somewhere along the line, the idea of putting all this knowledge that you've accumulated into one place, not only as a reflection on experiences past, but to create a true roadmap forward for marketers. And the idea of quantum marketing is born. Talk about the earliest iteration of the idea and how the product evolved and where it was the same as the earliest idea and where it diverged? So the genesis of this uh, whole idea was in 2014, 2013, 2014, when I was doing the first five-year planning for MasterCard. So at that time, when I started conceptualizing uh, and doing this strategy, I suddenly felt that, look, marketing has been changing pretty rapidly. And past ways of doing marketing have to evolve. And that new way of evolution, I call it as marketing 4.0. And I talked about it internally and externally. I uh, made some presentations at various forums and so on. Fast forward two or three years, I fell off my chair when I saw a book written by Philip Kotler by the name of Marketing 4.0, the very exact title that I had used for my presentation. And the content was also matching very closely. So I said, Philip Kotler is Philip Kotler for a reason, because he was smart to write a book based on the concepts, whereas I did not. I was happy to make a few presentations here and there and then sit back. Number two, it was also a great validation for me that he's also thinking along the same lines as I have. And I consider him as my guru because my very first book I read about marketing was Philip Kotler's. That was what used to be our uh, book in our college when I was doing my MBA for marketing. So I said, okay, this is great. But what I also felt particularly good was that I was at least three years ahead of his thinking. So I said, this is great. So next time I should think about writing. So when I had come to 2018, uh, and started putting together 2019, and I started putting together the next five-year plan, I felt that actually marketing 4.0 also was relatively obsolete and that we are now entering the fifth paradigm of marketing. In every time there is a couple of new technologies, marketing gets disrupted. So when social media and the uh, mobile devices, smartphones became ubiquitous, we came into marketing paradigm number four when internet came about and when data analytics came into marketing, we came into paradigm number three. So each time we move from paradigm one to two or two to three or three to four, it was two, two technologies at a time that was pushing marketing to the next paradigm. Now we are at the verge of having more than two dozen new technologies that are coming our way. Artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, 3D printing, 5G, drones for delivery and logistics, autonomous driving vehicles, blockchains, NFT. The whole, it's like an absolutely nonstop you know, a parade of new technologies. It's a barrage of new technologies that are coming at us. So I said, what will be the impact of each one of these? And when I started doing it, I said, hold on a minute. This is actually a great idea for a book. 
and I should write a book. So I put a quick proposal and uh, HarperCollins leadership actually took it and they said, this is great, go ahead and uh, do it. So that was the genesis. And I wrote the whole book. On the one hand, I wanted to make the book very easy to understand for a marketer because many of the marketers are not technically uh, what you call sad. They are not into technology in a big way. So I said, I have to demystify these technologies and simplify things, make it easy to read and not make it like a textbook or like a, a, a technical paper. Number two, it's also good to give, particularly people who don't know much about the history of marketing. I wanted to give the evolution of marketing all the way from antiquity till where we are today. In the fifth paradigm, therefore, with all these technologies coming, marketing is going to be completely different. You need to reimagine marketing. The classical theories of marketing are simply not going to work. In fact, they're already beginning to fail big time. So if you look at loyalty, there's no concept of loyalty that's going to work in future. And I saw a survey on bbc.com once, and that's, that's the genesis of my investigation into that area of loyalty. It said that 70% of the people who were interviewed, uh, the people who were either in a relationship or they were married, they said that they have cheated on their spouses. And my uh, uh, aha moment was, look, people in a relationship have made some explicit or implicit commitment. And they are aware of the consequences of not being loyal, but they are not loyal anyway. If people are not loyal in their personal lives, a vast majority of them, why will they be loyal to the brands? We are so way down in the hierarchy. And therefore, are we as marketers stupid to be running loyalty programs the way we, we do them today? And we have to reinvent loyalty. So I said, okay, what will be the new way of doing loyalty? I said, it's not loyalty. It is preference management and stickiness management. And therefore, you have to completely have a different theory and structure around that whole aspect of preference management and getting the stickiness of the consumers. Mm -hmm. Like was I said, advertising, the way we know it is dead. It's not going to work. We have to reinvent advertising completely. The ecosystem today is not geared up for it. Likewise, if you look at areas like blockchains, they're going to bring about a radical transformation. NFTs that are already coming in in a big way, uh, you know, and it'll, it'll come beyond the initial uh, buzz. It'll actually get in pretty significantly into the space of marketing. But we need to think of all this. So what I tried to do is to demystify, simplify, and outline what this future looks like and give a very high level kind of a playbook for marketers to play with in this imminent future. And that's what I call is quantum marketing. It's a new way of marketing. In quant, in physics, the world of physics and classical physics, it, it stood the test of time for a number of centuries. But when mankind or humanity discovered outer space or subatomic particles, classical physics could not just explain. We needed a new branch of physics called quantum physics. In much the same way, and that is no quantum physics is the basis for everything we do in physics by and large today. In the same way, I say classical marketing is simply not going to work anymore. We need to reinvent and reimagine it. And the new way of doing it is quantum marketing. And I feel very grateful that it has met with great success. It has got uh, you know, onto the bestsellers list of Wall Street Journal. It has got multiple awards. Uh, and most recently, uh, Matt, what I feel very great about and proud about is that uh, a number of colleges and universities, including the Harvard Business School, have revamped their marketing curriculum uh, 
uh, in their MBA programs, uh, and in doing so, they leveraged my book pretty significantly. That's fantastic. And I think what you do so brilliantly in the book, Raja, one of the many things that you do brilliantly, is you sort of give us the history of where we come from, mm-hmm. while at the same time, you're drawing that roadmap of how technology is leading us forward to create something that is truly brand new. Well, Raja, this was such a joy uh, to talk to you. And uh, we are going to have to come back and do another round because we did not touch at all about uh, the tremendous work that you're doing to support small and medium-sized businesses. I would love to come back and do another episode at some point just to talk about that because it's not talked about enough. It's actually the majority of the U.S. economy and the global economy. And I know the work you're doing there for MasterCard leading the way forward for SMBs and SMEs is absolutely critical. And we must come back and do another Great Minds episode and talk about that. I would be absolutely thrilled to do another session with you, Matt. Uh, But again, sincerely, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share uh, my thoughts and having this fantastic conversation. Uh, Really appreciate it. And thank you very, very much. 